0: Inspired Execution is a podcast where tech leaders from global enterprises discuss their journey to scaling billion-dollar businesses. Chet Kapoor is chairman and CEO of DataStacks, with more than 20 years of experience working with global enterprises. Join us to hear about the experiences and mentors that played a role in their growth. CEO of Kitty Hawk and the founder and executive chairman of Udacity, Sebastian Thrun is an entrepreneur, educator, and computer scientist. He also founded Google's self-driving car team and Google X, the arm that created Google Glass and Waymo. Chet engages Sebastian about his passion for the world and putting knowledge into the hands of those who currently do not have easy access to it. People are the core element of every company, so give to those people and help them thrive through the power of education.
1: Hi, Sebastian. Thank you very much for joining us today for the Inspired Execution podcast. I appreciate your time. Hi, Chet.
2: good talking to you.
1: So let me get started. Uh, by the way, Sebastian and myself have known each other for a few years, and uh, I've, I'm always looking for different ways to associate myself and interact with Sebastian. He's a he's a brilliant gentleman who accomplished a lot, and so it's uh, it really is an honor to to have him here. Let me start with just a simple question. You've had a phenomenal journey personally, professionally. You're CEO of Kitty Hawk Corporation, co-founder of Udacity. Stanford professor, and so much more, right? And you've said the three most important skills for starting a venture or thriving in technology, and it's it's well stated, is to be arrogant, humble, and learn from failures. If you look back and reflect on your journey, of these three or any others you might have,
2: what comes easy to you? I'm generally a curious person. I enjoy life the most when I'm in the middle of learning something interesting. And it could be that I'm learning something about history or about technology, but I'm most intrigued when I learn about people because they're the most complex and the most interesting thing that this planet has produced. What that means for me is a job where I do the same thing day in, day out, where I'm really good at that one thing, doesn't attract me. It's just boring because I might be good at it, but being good at something doesn't intrigue me. Learning something new intrigues me. And what was hard as you've gone through and become as successful as you are? What was hard? I don't know if you, how many hours we have to uh, tell you all the things that were hard. As you become a professor, as you become an entrepreneur, or in my case, also a, a Google exec, there's just many mistakes you make. A year ago, uh, in my startup company, Udacity, we went from... 800 people or 850 people to 300 people. Oh. The people who left or the people I let go were amazing people. There were people that came for the right mission that worked extra hard. It just wasn't the the business hadn't really been worked out and we had to kind of f- focus the business. And that's not easy because you tend to think about employment and staff as people you want to make successful. You want to really lift up to, to be, become better versions of themselves. Not as something where you end up, in the end, laying them off. How long
1: did it take you after you went from 800 to 300 to, to really go back and energize the company? Was it a short period of time? Was it, did it take a little bit of time?
2: It took a while. And uh, part of the uh, transition from a very broad company to a very focused company, I also started a new CEO search. And we found, after a year of search, a highly qualified person who became the CEO. And I, w- I would actually argue that the transitional leadership helped the company turn a page. And, and now I think the company is extremely motivated, extremely focused. It's profitable, which is rare in Silicon Valley, but it's also rapidly growing. When you're going through, you know, things
1: that are, you've clearly learned a lot. You've done so many different things, like right? Self-driving cars, AI. When When things are not going well, How do you overcome these hurdles? How do you get through it? What's your inspiration?
2: First of all, I I wake up in the morning every day and thinking, what mountain do I want to climb? And It doesn't change every day. It changes every 20 years or so. But what is the thing which I believe has to be done to literally make the world a better place? So in Udacity's case, it became clear to me that there is a thirst for education. There's a human right for education. In fact, job skills training, higher education should be a basic human right in every country. And there's an enabling power in education. If you educate women in Saudi Arabia, for example, all of a sudden we can change the structure, we can't change religions. So I'm a hundred percent convinced this is the right thing to do in my life. What's harder is to understand how to do it. Like what's step number one, what's step number two? And You mentioned this in the beginning. I think there's two traits that collide. One is we have this steadfast kind of compassion that something ought to be done for the world. And it's it's worth anyone's life to just do it. But then at the same time, we have to be honest to ourselves. There is no book you can pick up on Amazon that are the 10 rules how to do it. You have to invent the rules and and tease out the rules and learn. And that means many things you try don't work out the way you expect them to work out. I, I give you one. Quest for democratizing education. We opened an office in China. We thought China is the biggest country in the world by people. If we only catch 1% market share, that'd be a great impact. It turned out it didn't work. In China, our brand, our name never resonated. And both us and our competitors all ended up closing their China offices. It worked really well in Egypt. Egypt is a small country. It worked really well in UAE, in Bahrain, in Saudi Arabia, because there we were able to garner the support of the federal government. And then go in and create the trust and, and the brand recognition necessary for people to trust us.
1: Is your inspiration, what would you say is your, because you, you did say it's not the what, right? Obviously, we get, we get obsessed about the what, but the how part is, is hard. And when things get rocky, is it the feeling fast mantra that you use or is there some other way that you
2: get through it? Yeah, so I, I don't like failing, uh, whether it's fast or slow. Or I don't think anybody, I know anybody who loves failing. Uh So I don't think of it as failing. I think it was learning fast. My mantra is you can make any mistake, but you can make it only once. You're a fool when you make the same mistake twice. And that's great. Like if I make a mistake, and that's not failing, to be honest. It's just you made a mistake, honest mistake. Check, okay, in my... Rolodex of mistakes, that one's now crossed off, but I better learn from it. And I better and it's there's no negative feelings attached to Like, okay, we made a mistake, we tried that, it didn't work. It's like you navigate a city that you never navigated before and you find yourself in a dead end, you're not gonna be depressed. You just realize, okay, I took the wrong turn, let's retract and try
1: a different turn. I remember this quote from somebody, and it doesn't matter whether you're a golfer or not, right? But I think it was Tiger Woods that he was being interviewed. And somebody said, you know, you cannot spend a lot of time thinking about your last shot. You must think about it for a little bit and then move on. Think about the corrections you have to make. Learn from what you have to do, but don't dwell on it, right? Just move on. Before we got started, uh, we were having a conversation, very fond of what Udacity is doing and everything that's going on in the reskilling world, in the education world, very passionate about it. So before we talk about COVID, let's just take, go to something that's near and dear to your heart long before COVID happened, which was AI. What is your perspective on how AI is going to change the education
2: and the job market in the future? Well, AI is this, oh, let's call it machine learning to be a bit more specific. Is obviously one of these, these hot things that surround us today that will have a, a broad impact. Sometimes I think of AI akin of um, the book, the, the capability to have a reputable printing press, which was invented in, a, in the 1400 in Germany. The book allowed smart people to take their knowledge and spread it among millions of people. Prior to the book print, smart people could only spread their knowledge among dozens of people. And as a result, whatever the site is covered, spread much faster than most viruses, to use a contemporary example. AI is is even more. It can watch people do their work and kind of pick up those patterns without even people even having to write a book and then take those skills and give it to others. Like an example is self-driving cars. We have built AI that watches human drivers drive for a month or so and is enabled to drive as capably as the best human drivers. We've built AI that watch um, medical doctors, dermatologists, diagnose uh, skin cancer. And after watching a few hundred thousand images, it does it as good as the best human doctors. we watch build AI that watches salespeople in the process of selling things online. And after watching a hundred of them for like a month, it can do as well as those people and assist salespeople to be stronger. So for me, any repetitive work, even highly paid expert repetitive work from lawyers to doctors. Eventually, I will just pick up those skills and do them for us. And for us, that means we are being free to do the repetitive slave labor in some sense. We can do more creative things with our lives. And that's where humanity is always driven.
1: Great point. There is obviously a pattern to which industries it affects first. But I think definitely a process-oriented work will get affected uh, sooner rather than later because, you know, And so that's that's clear. But what about the classroom? What about the education market?
2: How does AI affect
1: the the education market?
2: Well, for one, in two ways. For one, if you are a college student today, you better know about AI and the impact on all jobs in the world. If you ignore those technologies, then good luck being productive in this new world order. But also, education companies like Udacity are putting AI. In at their core, there's so many facets of AI that it's very hard to, to pinpoint it to one thing. But one thing that AI does really well is data and analytics, understanding what are the patterns. And when you understand what the patterns are, you can improve much more systematically. So AI is able to pick up the smallest amounts of variation among different learners, among different curricula and different problem sets, different lectures, and really optimize those to have maximal efficiency. When they come to the students, and they can do this much much better than your run-of-the-mill professor like myself, because we don't have that much ability to observe that many students at the same time. Yeah, I, I would not call
1: yourself a run-of-the-mill professor, but nevertheless, I think that's there are certain things that machine learning definitely brings. And and but would you say it's still in its infancy, where we are, where companies like Udacity are using it a little bit more, but it's not shown up in what we would call a traditional classroom, like in elementary schools or
2: in, in schools or in colleges? Yeah, the uh, I mean, over the last thousand or so years, classroom instruction has ever been very, very teacher-centric. Around the early uh, 19th, 19th century, 1802, uh, someone invented the chalkboard. And there was a vivid discussion among educators whether turning your back to the class while you're writing on a board is suitable and will still lead to the desired learning effects. And that was kind of the most recent radical innovation in, in classroom education. The reason why this is slow is education takes a long time. So as a result, innovation education takes a long time. And people in education tend to be somewhat risk averse. Uh, and it comes with the fact, especially in K-12, that if you try to innovate in K-12 and you make a mistake, you might actually hurt a child. And the child might not even have a say. And that makes it hard for people to try crazy new things. I do, however, believe that there's opportunity. And the opportunity that I see is actually, I wish that we would change the American classroom. We are doing it now through COVID. I just learned yesterday, since COVID started about two and a half months ago, only half of American high school students have even locked into a system for learning. The other half hasn't done anything. So there's certainly innovation happening, whether you like it or not. But further than that, I think the real opportunity is in places where education is just not present. If you go to the Middle East, you go to Africa, you go to South America, you go to Indonesia, you go to a big parts of China, Russia, uh, India, I've just listed you, three-quarters of the world population, you really won't find a good college there, a top 100 university. Absolutely. The disruption
1: in education is coming and it has to be thoughtful. Like you said, if you don't do it right, it affects an adult or a child's life, right? And without them having any control of it. But I think COVID is going to do, as we were talking about before, I think COVID is going to do nothing but accelerate that process. And I hope it moves a little quicker because we certainly don't learn the way we live. There's an impedance mismatch um, between the way we live and the way we learn. So I think... It's great to see Udacity do all the innovations that you are because all the, all the educational institutes can probably learn from it in a massive way.
2: We're all familiar with the idea that we don't know something. We go Google it. That's, that's learning that in my books. I'd say YouTube is a massive educational success. I actually watch kids spending endless hours on YouTube teaching themselves stuff that might not be math or calculus, but it's still a lot of stuff that they learn from YouTube. So the, the human mind, in my opinion, is wired to learn. And sometimes we adults forget this because we're scared of the unknown and we kind of want to be on a safe place. And man, some of us live a life that they cherish doing the same thing every day. But when you look at children, children are sponges for learning. And it's amazing to see how they grab anything they can get to learn something.
1: And it's really interesting, right? One talks about things like TikTok. I learned how to crack an egg with one hand with TikTok. There's, it's learning happening all over the place. However, for a child, you have to structure it because you if my daughter spends 12 hours on YouTube and it's an unproductive side, right? And that's the structure that needs to come into the education system. The human mind is wired for learning because I think thats we're, we're doing it even when we don't know we're doing it. To shift gears, Sebastian, you've always said, and you said this in the beginning, I I think about what the world would look like 50 years from now. Give us your sense of what education might look like 30 or 50 years from now.
2: I believe that education will become kind of part of the entire life in a very positive and enlightening way. Today, we split life into, I know, the first five years are play, and then the next, whatever, 17 years are learn, and then the next 40 40 or so years are perform and work, and then the next 10, 15 years are rest. Yeah. I think these slices of play, learn, work, and rest will all occur at the same time. Yes. That is, even a 35 or 40-year-old person will realize, wow, there's this new thing called data stacks, or whatever it is, and I gotta be on top of it because I can actually do something interesting with it. And then re engages and, and, and just goes into the journey to rediscover how to become on top of the na- latest innovation. The reason why they believe this is there's two forcing functions here. One is we we live longer than ever before, and second, technology changes faster than ever before. So I challenge any computer science grad who has been out of grad school for say ten years to point at something that they learned that is still up to date today. Because the systems, the APIs, the programming languages, the technology is constantly changing. And maybe the basic skill set stays somewhat the same, the same logical uh, thinking. But you can't have graduated 10 years ago and know about the latest programming languages. So for them, that point, I believe the myth of one-time learning will be replaced by lifelong learning, by stackable credentials, by something small and little. You do maybe five or ten minutes every day.
1: And I also think this our mindsets are shifting, right, because we have this industrial era thing of, hey, you get educated, you go to this massive institute, and you then go and work, and you work till you retire, and then you have some fun. I think the new generation that was born on the web and coming up and learning about AI, I love the concept of they're going to do all three of these together. And so it's not like they're just going to learn in the first 22 years of their lives. They're going to learn throughout, right? And they're going to have fun throughout and they're going to work throughout because they're probably going to be doing it for till they're 80 or 90
2: or or even 100. Yeah. And that would be wonderful. Imagine how wonderful life would be if you were get, get the chance to do something new. Like imagine you'd be a lawyer for 10 years and you become a medical doctor for 10 years and then you become a CEO for 10 years. How great the life would be because now you get these incredibly new challenges in life that you have to master. Sebastian,
1: I've got two questions. How difficult is it for you to change gears between doing Kitty Hawk and doing Udacity? Because they are two completely separate businesses. And I understand you have where you've recruited a CEO and he's running Udacity, but you think about Udacity quite a bit. I'd say in both cases,
2: I love the mission. I love what we're trying to accomplish. We are, we are literally reaching for the stars. Obviously, Kitty Hog is a pre-revenue company, which is very different in style from a company that tries to be cash flow positive. But in, in our cases, I think the core element is people. You have a team of people that you have to build up and trust and, and elevate. And that's true for both companies. I'd say last year I was a CEO of both and I had the misfortunate job to focus and somewhat shrink Udacity in his staff. And that's intense. That's just a lot of work and a lot of actually emotional work as well, because you have to say goodbye to people. But then in both cases, I'd say I get most engaged when I can help the most, when my time is best spent. And I love to get to the point where I can just blindly trust my leadership teams to do the right things, which is usually the case in which case it's not that hard, in which case I have time for, for example, uh, this chat with you, chat this morning. Thank you. So to wrap it
1: up, um, you know, when the story is written, so when Ken Burns wants to produce a documentary on how Inspired Execution impacted your company, enterprises, and the world, and how it came about, when the documentary airs for the first time, what will the narrator say in the 30-second promo to entice us all to tune in to this
2: episode? Oh, my God. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, I'm confident it'll never be written because there's so much more better entrepreneurs in the valley than myself. But I do remember a while back, I got a brain scan, and there's a region in my brain that's missing. It's filled by fluid of the size of a walnut. And I showed this to my team and said, this is the fear center. And some of my brain didn't develop it. <laughs> when you ask people about me, uh, for better or worse, uh, fear is not a quality that factors into my thinking.
1: That is awesome. Sebastian, thank you very much again and really appreciate it. By the way, thanks a lot for showing me that picture. (laughs) I've had a chance to see it as well. So it's actually pretty cool. Appreciate the time. Good luck with everything that's going on. And I I know you're going to continue to evolve the, not just Udacity, but evolve the education system and lead by example. So thank you very much for your time again. Totally. Good talk to you.
0: We hope you take away the value of education and how innovation through AI can make it more accessible. We're always on a path to learn. So become an intriguing leader by staying curious. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Inspired Execution podcast, hosted by Chairman and CEO of Datastacks, Chet Kapoor. We have many more guests with phenomenal stories to come, so stay tuned. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the series to be notified when a new conversation is released. And feel free to drop us any questions or feedback at datastax.com.